My question to the leader of the new NDP Liberal Party is this. When did he start these secret talks with his new Deputy Prime Minister, the member for Burnaby South? Was it before, during, or just after? the last election. Mr. Speaker, what we're going to see is an ability to work across party lines to reduce the toxic partisanship that we've seen in the past in this House and actually move forward on delivering concretely for Canadians. That's what Canadians want. That's what we're going to deliver. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that's how it sounded yesterday in Ottawa. You heard Conservative leader Candace Bergen there ripping Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It's a three-year power deal here between Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. It will keep Trudeau in power through 2025. The House of Commons hit an uproar over yesterday. The Conservatives say it's a Trudeau power grab that will cost Canadian taxpayers a fortune. The Liberals say it will deliver political stability and big benefits for Canadians. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, two of my favorite guests on the show returning. Randip Sarai is the Liberal MP in Surrey Centre. Randip, thanks for coming on again today. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Also got Dan Albus back, Conservative MP, represents the Central Okanagan in the House of Commons. Hey, Dan. Hi, Mike. Hi, Randip. Thank you, gentlemen, both of you, for being here. Randip Sarai, let me go to you first. Can you sell this deal to the listeners here this morning? Like, what, what is going on here with this team up here between Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh? Why? Sure, this brings stability. This brings uh, uh, good governance. I think it's uh, in the benefit of Canadians. Uh, we get to uh, have stability that we know we have three or four budgets of stability. We get to get fundamentals in health care and climate action uh, commitments done. So it's not on an on a ad hoc basis. Uh, we get that commitment. People, Canadians uh, want that. Uh, two parties have uh, demonstrated they want that. So we, we get that stability into it. And it, it uh, creates a roadmap map so you can actually plan and i think it's actually beneficial for all parties where regardless of whether you're uh, the federal liberals the the ndp or the conservatives uh people have a timeline people don't want an election early uh, they have okay. four years to plan and the opposition still gets to be the opposition and the government gets to be the government okay i got a feeling dan albus might disagree with you here go ahead dan well, you know, this reminds me of the old Jack and the Beanstalk story. And I, and I don't mean to refer to Jack Layton and what he did with Paul Martin during the minority to leverage good things for the NDP. Uh, but, you know, this is more like Jugmeet Singh and the magic beans of political stability uh, that he's uh, gotten back. And somehow Mr. Singh doesn't seem to understand how contract and supply agreements work. Uh, because when we saw that here in the British Columbia with John Horgan uh, and the Greens, uh, maybe Mr. Singh thinks he's the John Horgan in this con- this this uh, supply agreement, but newsflash, he's the Sonia First Snow. Uh, when Mr. Trudeau talks about political stability, he's talking about political stability for Justin Trudeau, and I just don't understand. It's so disrespectful to NDP partisans. It's so disrespectful to the caucus to have a secret deal suddenly leaked on Monday night when they're getting briefed by the media, and then the next morning he and the Prime Minister go out and tout this locked-in deal. So you know what? Uh, you know what? I have to 
say about this. It is a power grab, and I just, for the heck of me, can't understand how Jagmeet Singh is going to sell this to the grassroots, the people that knocked on doors, the people that pounded signs. Because in the last election, he said, I'm running for prime minister. I'm not going to be supporting Mr. Trudeau. That's, That's what he's betrayed here. Let's talk a little bit about some of the deliverables in this deal and how much they will cost. So we're talking about a national dental care plan, universal pharmacare, in Canada. Have a listen to this gentleman and get your thoughts on it. Conservative leader Candace Bergen questioning the Prime Minister yesterday. How much is this going to cost? Have a listen. Canadians are going to be living with a new NDP Liberal government and the price tag has just skyrocketed. The NDP Liberal government's initial platform will cost over $200 billion and that is just the tip of the iceberg. Can the NDP Liberal Prime Minister tell Canadians how much this backroom deal is going to cost them? Okay, there was not really much of an answer from Trudeau on that yesterday. Let me ask Rand, Liberal MP Randeep Sarai. Randeep, how much will this cost? Well, look, the cost of not doing it is even more. When people skip their uh, their medicines, when they uh, split their pills, when seniors can't pay for uh, for the medicines that they need at their vital age, or, uh, or or young people who are still getting into the workforce and can't afford their medicine, the cost of that to the healthcare system and the indignity to them is way more than what it costs. What it's going to be doing, it's a phased-in approach, whether it's the dental plan or whether it's the pharmacare plan. It'll help the most vulnerable first, and it'll be working in collaboration with the provinces. So it'll be a joint commitment mm. from the provinces and the federal government. Well, will it cost? Eventually, it'll actually cost less in the long run than it costs now when we have people not taking their medical uh, medicines and their pharmacare, and they're going to hospitals well, will, treated then at will $5,000 a day. Will it cost $200 billion a year, like Candace Bergen I, I said? I definitely think it's not $200 billion a year, and I think that cost analysis will be done when the layout of this program will be done in a phase-by-phase approach. If, for example, dental will be done for those that are not and under first and then yeah. slowly to 12 12 year olds and etc and then eventually uh, only fully for 70,000 in annual income or or lower so these are the type of systems and it has safeguards to do that conservative mp dan albus your thoughts and folks, get your you get your seatbelts on. Uh, we're in for a crazy ride. Uh, the the pre budget consultation reports that had larded in hundreds of billions of dollars of new spending uh, was tabled, and it's no focus on growth. There's no focus on prioritization on having a review of basic spending. So that if you want to add a new program, you take something that's not working or no longer necessary away. This is no longer the centrist party that the liberals always pretended. In fact. Longtime liberal and former advisor to Prime Minister Kretchen, Warren Kinsella, dubbed this backroom deal the access of weasel dirty deal. So anyone who believes in fiscal responsibility, anyone who wants to help Canadians to save a little money to, to, to offset some of the inflation, the NDP Liberal Coalition is going to pump billions of dollars of new spending. And you know what? He can't even tell us when or how much. Liberal MP Randip Sarai, what do you say to Western Canadians? There was a specific warning to them yesterday from Conservative leader Candace Bergen that this deal could devastate and decimate the oil and gas sector in Western Canada, uh, primarily Alberta, but we got a big, we got a big uh, natural gas uh, industry here in BC too. What can you say to those industries? Are they threatened by this deal? 
Absolutely not. We're committed to transitioning those that are in those sectors. And just look at the last six years. Unemployment record, unemployment rate has dropped to record lows. Even post-pandemic, uh, uh, it's lower than pre-pandemic. Growth is expected at 6% this year and higher, uh, one of the highest growth rates uh, this country's ever expected. So even uh, the federal coffers are expected to be much higher uh, because of that growth. So Canada's actually doing, uh, uh, doing very well. Canadians have been working very hard. And the trajectory uh, to growth is, is, is insurmountable. It's, it's an unexcellent growth rate. Unemployment rates even in Alberta have dropped uh, since we've been mm. in. Uh, so we are on a positive trajectory. We are on a transition. We're helping uh, Alberta and the oil sector and the natural gas sectors uh, not only get their market, their, their, their product to Tidewater, but also transition into more cleaner uh, fossil fuel free economies. And okay. it's working. Okay, Dan Albus, what do you say to that? Well, let's just remember what happened with the northern cod fishery when the government of the day said, that's it, no more. They promised all sorts of transitions. And I will tell you, if you talk to people in Atlantic Canada, those jobs never successfully tra- you know, transitioned into, into anything else. So we're actually talking about a devastation of both our, our ability to supply our own energy uh, and to also uh, have high-paying jobs and to attract investment. An NDP liberal coalition like this is going to chase investment away. And so, you know what, we, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what did, what did Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh sign us up onto? They basically are, are, are creating where, where we're going to see less uh, opportunities. And uh, for, for British Columbia, we're the ones that want to see LNG. We want to see yeah. greenhouse gases go down. You can't do that without investment. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for being here today at another good discussion. I appreciate it a lot. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Dan Albus, Conservative MP in the Central Okanagan. Thank you guys once again for being here. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the deal now between Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. It is a three-year confidence and supply agreement in Ottawa. It will keep the Trudeau Liberal government in power through 2025. Now let's take a look at one of the key deliverables in this agreement. It's a national dental care plan. Now have a listen to a Jagmeet Singh talking about the deal here. You will hear him reference uh, the dental care component here. Have a listen. I'm going into this with a strong belief that we're going to continue to fight hard and we're going to force these results uh, for Canadians. We're going to make sure people get the, the support they need. We're going to make sure people can get their teeth looked after. We're going to make sure people can afford their medication. We're going to make sure that people can find a home they can afford. We're going to fight hard for these things. Okay, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking in Ottawa yesterday. Let's talk about a national dental care plan now with my guest, Bruce Wallace. Bruce is an associate professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Victoria, and he's written extensively and researched this issue. Thanks a lot, Bruce, for coming on today. Yeah, hello. Okay, thanks for doing this, Bruce. So let's talk about a national dental care plan. Is this the right thing to do in Canada right now, in your opinion? 
Oh, yeah. The only thing that's wrong with the plan is that it's taken this long. Um, you know, we have a, quite an absurd situation in Canada where we have a huge pride in universal health care uh, or Medicare as, as, as uh, Canadians. Um, but then for some reason, we think that that should stop at the at the jaw and the mouth and the jaw and our teeth are, are not included in that. It's really absurd. And so, yeah, I think that um, this is makes total sense. And we've been advocating for this for uh, decade, decades, if not longer. Yeah, how many Canadians right now can't afford to go to the dentist? Um, I think it's been over one in five before. Um, And um, I think what's really clear is that it's not um, just a low-income issue. Like, there's a gradient of need is what's been really clear now um, since over the time is that, um, yes, there's, like, some really core need where uh, people cannot afford anything except, like, with... Do we lose them? Um, oh. Are more what would be called middle class are also facing barriers. And one thing, Mike, that I just want to sort of put in there is like it's yeah. dental, the cost of dental care is not unrelated to the housing crisis. So if you have no per, uh, benefits to pay for dental care, if it's going to totally come out of your pocket, that's also coming out of the same pocket that's going to pay for food and for housing. So it could be that no matter how low those dental fees go if you're paying out of pocket you might not have that money after you've paid for your housing so i think this is why like like health care we need to have dental care included speaking of bruce wallace from the university of victoria we're talking about a national dental care plan now promised by the trudeau government here with support from the ndp taking a look at some statistics canada numbers here bruce a recent numbers said about 22 percent of canadians will avoid going to the dentist because of the cost. So that is roughly in the ballpark of what you mentioned there. So that is a, a significant number. Is there um, like a, a, an opportunity cost there for people and, and society as a whole? Like if you don't go to the dentist because you don't want to pay for it, then maybe your condition gets worse. You end up maybe end up in hospital to get it treated and cost more down the road. Yeah, I think that's, I think there's, that's there, that cost benefit analysis, but I, you know, I, I don't even want to go there. I think it's more about a decency and human ethics that like people shouldn't have to live with active mm-hmm. infections and, and pain and be expected to then parent to work to have a quality of life. And we're saying that, no, you can't you can't get that relief unless you can pay for it. What we have in the Canada is being called the inverse care law, where right now with dentistry, the people who have the least needs are getting the most level of care and the most access to dental care. The people who are most in need are getting the least access. Mm. It's an inverse relationship to what we should be having. And so I think, you know, that's where I want to focus on. Like, yes, we might be saving money, but uh, I think it's more about, um, you know, what's our priorities um, when we talk about public health objectives. Yeah. And when you take a look at, you know, the equality and, and access to the system that we have now, this is a system that will be phased in. And it will be means tested. So it's not, they're not talking about universal dental care for everybody. It will be primarily aimed at low income families to start with. So you talk about starting with kids first. So like kids under 12. Is that the, is that the right way to start? Like to, to focus on children, children's dental care first? Are they like the, the prime demographic they should go for first here, do you think? Well, I don't know why there'd be any need to delay um, a full implementation, really. Again, this has been in calling for decades. There's no shortage of evidence 
to say go forward. I think what we should be looking at is access for adults too. And I think we have models. So for example, if we look at British Columbia through social assistance, we know that the public dental welfare benefits um, are inadequate. They're about half of what the rate is um, that people with employer benefits would get. And that means people are accessing barriers to care, which is at the provincial level and First Nations Health Authority, those, their fee guides are actually linked to the same ones that Blue Cross and others would provide. We need to. We know that which plans are working for people and which ones aren't. And so I think, like when the when the uh, federal government moves forward, it's like looking at what works, and it could be implemented pretty fully. And I think immediately. Do you think it should be uh, like a full cost program? Because I've I've even heard some criticism of some of the provincial programs that you referenced there, where in some cases they might only pay thirty to fifty percent of dental fees. Do you think that? the fees should be like pay a hundred percent of the costs or should there be like a copay that would people be required to pay part of it themselves? I think we should be looking at this from a health equity perspective. I don't think it should be based on the ability, your healthcare should be based on what you can afford. I think it should be based on what you need. And so I think we need to be looking at the dental profession. And when they, when there's a basic treatment cost, if somebody requires that, it shouldn't be based on if they can pay or not. It should, and we should make sure that the public benefits can actually afford the basic need care for people. We're not talking about elective surgeries, cosmetic dentistry. We're talking about basic care for people to do preventive, restorative work. Um, and um, I think we, you know, I think we want to move forward that again from a health equity perspective, saying that if somebody's getting access, it should be equitable care and it should be equitably funded, and that we shouldn't be saying that some people are going to get better care than others because they have more money in Canada. Okay, so when you were saying that it, it should not cover all services, so you're talking, let's say your kid needs braces, right? Man, that can be expensive, I know from experience. Should that be covered under a, under a national plan like that, or should it just be like real basics, like cavities, fillings? Again, I think all of this is being thought through. We are, we've had prevent public dental plans, you know, for decades through the First Nations Health Authority, through the refugee benefits and from the feds and from the provincial welfare programs and so and healthy kids programs. So we have a whole bunch of models that we can actually look at. I don't think we know that we can define basic dental care. And that includes not just relief of pain, that includes preventive and restorative work, but does not go beyond that. Like that's really easy for for bureaucrats to figure out. What, what is preventive and restorative work? How do you define that? Yeah, so preventive means that people can access hygiene visits. Um, so okay. people can get cleanings and checkups. Restorative means that it's not just relief of pain. So if you have a, tooth, if you have a decayed tooth, um, you don't just have to get an extraction. You can actually get that tooth repaired. Um, so for me, for example, it could be a filling or it could be a crown um, and because I have access to, to employer benefits to the university. And that sort of should be there too. It shouldn't be that if you have dental pain and you don't have the money to afford it, you have to have that front tooth extracted, yeah. for example. There are so many questions here about this program and that we're just learning about, like what services will be covered, which we discussed, who will deliver these services? Will the provinces be part of this? And we're already hearing the federal government saying that there will be a provincial component to this, that the provinces will be on, have to be on board as well. So could that be a barrier or a problem if there's a provincial pay component, like if some provinces balk at doing that? It totally will be, yeah. And if the province of BC continues with the, with the fee guide that is not comparable 
to what private practice dentistry is getting from employer benefits, it's going to still be a barrier to care. We know that very, very clearly. And right now, we think that the provincial fee guide is only paying about half. So what we have is a single model of dentistry. Like These are businesses, they're for-profit businesses that provide dentistry in, in British Columbia and in Canada. And so I don't think we can expect a private practice business to be able to say that there'll be two different people walking in the door. One's going to pay $100, the other person's going to pay 50 for the same treatment. I don't think it's going to happen that that's going to get equitable access. Yeah, and with regard to that provincial fee guide that you mentioned where in many cases only pays half, is that who gets who gets access to that program? Is that for people on uh, like income assistance or people with disabilities or who gets that? Yeah, Mike, that's one of the challenges is we have the provincial dental benefits linked mostly to social assistance. And so I think what we need to be moving forward to with this federal um, proposal is what they're talking about, which is more about income levels that um, would include people who are employed um, but don't have access to uh, benefits. So people might call that the working poor. But again, we know it even goes beyond that. So many self-employed people um, and people in gig economy. There's just so many people that may not have employer benefits but are employed and not receiving social assistance. That's who we really need to be reaching out to this new plan. How did you feel? Last question for you, Bruce. Like This is an issue you've been advocating for for a long time. What went through your mind when you heard about this deal between the NDP and the Liberals and that a national dental plan was front and centre, part of it? Yeah, I think what went through my mind is we really need to be looking at the, when we release this proposal at the federal level, I think it should be including community dental clinics. I think we need to have dental homes for people that may not fit that for-profit business model. Um, that is the only model we have in uh, Canada for dentistry. So I think, again, we need to have uh, places that are supporting people who are going to get these benefits to be able to get care that's really appropriate and culturally safe for them. And that's where I think some of the community dental clinics can be part of that safety right. net. Okay, lots to talk about as going going forward here. Bruce, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Let's talk about the situation in Ukraine now. Tomorrow will mark the one-month mark of the Russian invasion. Ukraine is still standing, defying Vladimir Putin's apparent plans for a quick military victory. The war goes on, though, and it's brutal. A lot of lives are being lost. We have a humanitarian crisis with a number of refugees increasing every single day. All right, let's discuss now. And what a great guest we have for you this morning, Jeremy Kinsman, uh, one of Canada's veteran diplomats, 40 years in the Foreign Service for Canada, and he served many years as a Canadian ambassador in the United Kingdom, in Rome, ambassador to the European Union, and several years as Canada's ambassador to Russia. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jeremy, thank you very much for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Hi, Vancouver. I'm very grateful to you for being here. Let me ask your your thoughts as a former Canadian ambassador to Russia, your thoughts about the situation on the ground right now in Ukraine. One month tomorrow, that's when Russia rolled into Ukraine. Are you surprised at all at the, the level of the, the fierce level of resistance from the Ukrainians and that Ukraine is still standing today? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, everybody, uh, most military anal- analysts thought that a much bigger Russian army, much better equipped, would just roll over uh, the Ukrainians, and uh, the opposite has happened. They're stymied. Uh, the Russians are, you know, doing uh, too many things in too many different places. 
uh, of the country, and uh, they're uh, this is a stalemate right now. Yeah. And in these circumstances, you know, like in baseball, a tie goes to the runner. In this uh, circumstance, a stalemate goes to the defenders. By the way, I was uh, ambassador to Russia, but it was a different Russia. This is a Russia run by one guy, and it's that one guy who is calling the shots. Yeah. How, where do you think that that guy went wrong here? How did Putin miscalculate? He seems to have got it all wrong, whether the, the, the speed of the military uh, achievements in Russia, he got that wrong. The impact of the Western sanctions, the ability of NATO to, to come together and, 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 to, and for the Western allies to, to fight back, the resistance of the Ukrainians. Has this been just been a one massive miscalculation by Putin here? Yeah, I think the thing he got wrong is really behavioral. He's been in power for 22 years, and perhaps that's wrong to start with. It's wrong that he's surrounded now only by a small group of people who are yes men. He doesn't get any contrary advice. Everybody's afraid of him, so they tell him what he wants to hear. What he wanted to hear was delusional. Uh, It isn't uh, the facts on the ground. And I don't know if they're telling him the truth now about how many losses there have been, you know, uh, about how stiff the resistance is. But uh, your list of things he got uh, miscalculated is absolutely right. And, you know, the burden is going to come down on the Russian people. They're the ones who are going to feel the pinch. It's not because they can't get a Starbucks, uh, you know, uh, a latte that they're hurting. They're, they're, they're hurting in every conceivable economic way, and that's going to go on. Of course, uh, he will try and uh, make them resent us more for that. And uh, somehow the right information has to get through. The Russians aren't the victims here. The victims, as you said in your introduction, are the people of Ukraine. Speaking to Jeremy Kinsman, Canada's former ambassador to Russia. Let me play a clip here for you. I'm really curious for your thoughts on this. This is something that jumped out at me. In the run-up to this invasion, the Western intelligence on this was bang on accurate i mean we had joe biden and others just warning like they're going in russia is going to invade this country and russia kept denying it saying we're no we're not going to do it let me play a clip here for you i thought was and and get your analysis on what the russian strategy was here this is sergey ryabkov the deputy foreign affairs minister for russia and here he is speaking back in january over these uh, persistent uh, suggestions that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Now, here he is denying it, then I'll get your thoughts. I do believe that uh, there is uh, no risk of a larger-scale war uh, to start to unfold in Europe or elsewhere. Uh, We do not want and will not uh, take any action of aggressive character. We will not attack, strike, invade, quote-unquote, whatever, Ukraine. Okay, that's the Deputy Foreign Affairs Minister for Russia speaking in January, just denying it all. We're not going to do this. We're not going to invade. Why did they, you know, from your perspective as a former ambassador to Russia, Jeremy, like, what do you think was the strategy there, this sort of lying? To be uh, the most generous and probably unrealistic uh, for good old Sergei there, the deputy minister, is that he wasn't in the loop. He was given things to say, and he said them, and he believed them. Uh, The more likely uh, answer, I guess, 
is that uh, they just had a systemic uh, uh, concert among everybody to prepare this thing, which obviously needed preparation. As you said, it may have needed more than they gave it. But, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and they simply lied. And as an ambassador or as, a, uh, you know, the president of France or the chancellor of Germany who have dealt with Putin and have had those lies right in their face as recently as four weeks ago, I think uh, Russia is going to have, uh, official Russia, a real problem recovering from having lied in that way. Everybody spins, you know. Everybody presents the truth in the best light for them. But nobody flat out lies like this guy just did. And that's not going to be forgotten. It's not just that people aren't going to trust you in the future. Is they're going to hold you very, very personally responsible for contributing to a tragedy that has affected so many lives. Speaking of Jeremy Kinsman, Canada's former ambassador to Russia, speaking of that, like whether the Russians can be trusted, there are peace talks going on. They don't seem to be getting anywhere, but at least they are, they are talking. Do you see any kind of a, a diplomatic off-ramp here to end this thing through diplomatic channels? Is that possible? Well, I see the end game has to be that, uh, Mike. Uh, that, that, you know, peace talks always go on while war is going on. If you just think back uh, to Vietnam, they went on for a couple of years. Uh, obviously, uh, the more aggressive party uh, is always uh, looking for a better improvement in their position on the battlefield tomorrow or day after tomorrow uh, before uh, actually making serious offers because they hope to do so from a position of strength. The increasing evidence is that Russia is not going to, you know, they're probably, they probably got a position now as good as they're going to have. I mean, Putin uh, probably still hopes for more. He hopes he's going to put the squeeze on Kiev and these other cities uh, like Odessa. But uh, the evidence is he's not. Yes, there has to be, uh, if not an off-ramp, there has to be a negotiated, first of all, a ceasefire, then a negotiation which is going to involve uh, parties coming together. It's got to be obviously presentable as win-win. If one side doesn't overwhelm the other, you get unconditional surrender, then you have to negotiate in a way in which each party is going to try to present themselves as not being a loser. So that's right. right. And some of the things that are on the table, uh, Russia is asking for sort of what they call de jure uh, uh, confirmation of what is already de facto, which is like Crimea is part of Russia, uh, some of those things may be uh, doable, but it's tough for Mr. Zelensky to give up on issues of sovereignty under pressure, you know. But I think at the end of the day, that's the only way it's going to happen. And sooner or later, like in Northern Ireland, for example, both parties just get exhausted by the war. And our job here is to make sure that the uh, Russians get exhausted first. Speaking of uh, President Zelensky, he said the other day that Ukraine would not be joining NATO anytime soon, even though it is right in the Ukrainian constitution. That appeared to be kind of a concession that he said that. Is that how you interpreted that comment that Ukraine would not join NATO? Is that a signal to Putin that, look, Let's talk here. Let's sit down and talk. We can put that neutral Ukrainian neutrality on the table as a bargaining chip. 
Mike, it's, a, it's an example of what I mentioned before between the difference between what a formal position is and what reality is. Zelensky said that before. The reality is there was no chance of Ukraine joining NATO in the foreseeable future. That had been made clear to Putin several times, going back 10 years. So that, you know, that's a fake issue for him. The real issue is he didn't consider Ukraine to be a legitimate state, a legitimate country. He saw it as being part of Russia. That's his big hang-up. And what this whole battle, this whole incredible surge of solidarity has proven is that he is dead wrong about that. Ukrainian is a society, it is a state, it is a nation. He's made a huge miscalculation, Mike, in, in bombing the Russian-speaking people of uh-huh. Ukraine, the ones he thought were going to welcome his soldiers with flowers around their necks. Well, he can forget that. They are hated now by the very people he had counted on to welcome them coming in. Last question for you. NATO and the NATO alliance has resisted Zelensky's calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. There have been other calls, though, for some sort of limited no-fly zone over humanitarian corridors over the country or the idea of a humanitarian airlift into into Ukraine to get people out and deliver humanitarian aid. Is that possible at this point, do you think? I don't know. I mean, look, uh, the humanitarian airlift still uh, faces the problem that unless you get the Russians to agree to it, Uh, You're flying into territory in which they have fighter aircraft who could resist it. And if your uh, humanitarian airlift is being provided by uh, NATO planes, uh, then you're going to have to protect them with your own planes. And then you're going to have a shooting war with Russian planes and you're going to be taking out ground-based radar in Russia. And there you go. Okay, so uh, the the much better way is to get a ceasefire to get a ceasefire. You can just the people can get out. Okay, if you can't get a feet ceasefire, try somebody who's got to stick it to Putin. Somebody who's got has got the you know, they got the stature Macron or somebody has got to say, look, you say you don't want to take civilian lives. Well, now's the time to prove it. Let's have a corridor going in there to have to airdrop or to uh, allow planes to land in Kiev uh, without hostile opposition to provide absolutely essential uh, supplies for people to be able to continue to live. Let's stick it to them. Otherwise, it's very difficult. The no-fly zone is difficult for all the reasons that experts have uh, provided. It's going to, the problem now is not to escalate, it's to de-escalate that we got to get at without making concessions or uh, improving uh, the Russian position. I certainly hope that happens in the days ahead. Jeremy Kinsman, thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about changing COVID rules in the workplace now. COVID rules and regulations and mandates, they're changing across the country, including rules in offices, stores, workplaces. What happens if you've been working at home during the pandemic? A lot of people love that setup. 
What happens if your boss says, hey, you've got to come back to the office now? Can you keep working from home if you want? What about masking rules and vaccine mandates? Those are changing. Let's discuss now with my guest, Leah Moody, managing partner at the employment law firm Samfuru to Markin. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Leah, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Hey, Leah, there's a lot. I'm sure you're getting a ton of phone calls on this kind of stuff these days. Let, let's talk about that one I mentioned off the top. Let's let's say you've been working at home for the last couple of years. I know lots of people who have been doing that, and a lot of people love it, too. Now you get a phone call from your boss. Hey, time to get back to the office here. Do you have any any wriggle room there? Can you keep working at home if you want, or or can your boss make you come back? Almost no wiggle room. And believe me, I mean, we've been getting a ton of questions on this. And understandably, people got used to working in their track pants and nobody wants to give that up. So I completely understand. And I think that a lot of employers um, understand that that's the sentiment as well. And so my sort of perspective for my employer clients so far has been that notwithstanding the fact that there's no real legal wiggle room, Many employers are more than willing to have that conversation and to try to accommodate somebody who has been able to work from home for this period of time. Um, So I would certainly recommend that for anybody who's in that situation, have that conversation. There's no harm in asking. But from a legal perspective, your employer has the absolute right to dictate the place of work. So unless you have a medical reason for why you cannot be in the workplace, or you have a family reason why you can't be in the workplace. Um, so you've got specific childcare obligations because your daycare shut down or something like that. Um, you are going to have to return to the office if your employer insists on that. Right. So even if you've been working at home, like you said, a lot of people have been doing that. A lot of people love it. I've talked to people who say that I'm doing a better job at home. I'm more productive working at home than I am at the office. Like if you'd say that to your boss, Look, no, I don't want to come. I don't want to come back to the office. I'm going to continue working here. Can your boss fire you for that? Certainly, yeah. yeah. If your if your employer is giving you a direct a directive to come yeah. back to the office to show up for work on Monday downtown, um, then your refusal to do that without their yeah. permission could be insubordination. It could be job abandonment. So you might not just be fired. You could be in a situation where you're being fired for no severance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can certainly see that coming up. What about, like you said, though, maybe try to talk to your boss. I mean, maybe your employer can be reasonable about it. Like I've heard some people say, well, how about a hybrid model? Maybe I'm not coming into the office every single day, but I continue to do some work at home, like maybe work something out. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as somebody who also operates in an employer capacity, we've got 10 associates who work at our office in Vancouver. If somebody came to me and said, hey, Leah, I'm much more productive when I work from home. Here's my case for that. I mean, this is classic lawyer speaking, but, you know, make your case, right? Explain why you're more productive. Show the numbers. Do what you can. Most employers are going to appreciate the business aspect of that uh, and be much more willing to accommodate you. Speaking to employment lawyer Leah Moody, you mentioned, Leah, that there may be some cases where people might have a legit reason for saying, I want to continue working at home. Let's say a medical reason. So let's say someone um, is vulnerable to to the virus. Uh, they Can they make a case for staying, continuing to work at home for a medical reason? 
certainly. And that's the case in a COVID situation or a non-COVID situation. The big question here is whether or not you've got the medical support. So if you have a doctor that's saying you can't be in the workplace for X, Y, and Z reasons, um, then you are definitely going to be in a position where you can ask your employer for accommodation. And I actually think that Um, You know, whereas before two to, you know, three years ago, uh, where employers may not have been set up to facilitate remote working arrangements, many companies and many industries have been forced to completely pivot. And so accommodating somebody who's in that position is now much, much easier. And employers going to have a far more difficult time saying, oh, we can't accommodate you because of cost concern. Or, you know, if you do it, then everybody has to do it. Or we don't know how productive you're going to be. If you've been working at home for the last two years, and now you've got a doctor that's saying you're part of a vulnerable population, you're better off continuing to work from home, um, your employer is likely going to have to let you to continue to work from home. Okay, that's very interesting uh, option that some some people might have. How about some of the other rules around COVID, like the mask mandate, which has now been largely dropped in most provinces, certainly here in British Columbia, no more mandatory mask mandate for indoor public spaces, with some exceptions like healthcare settings. What happens if you work in an office or a store and your boss says, hey, look, I want you to keep wearing your mask. I think it it gives people some comfort when they come into the store. Are you required to mask up if there's no mask mandate by the government? I think so. Um, and the reason why is because, um, again, absent any sort of medical accommodation, right? If somebody is asthmatic or has COPD or something that prevents them from wearing a mask, then there's going to have to be exceptions made. But very similar to how an employer can, you know, sort of set the parameters for uh, somebody's uniform in the workplace, or, you know, you can't have visible tattoos in the workplace, right? That is just going to form part of a policy of what's expected when somebody's in the office. From a customer perspective, you know, I'm I'm envisioning a future world where the signs on the door say no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service, right? That's completely legitimate and it's within the employer's prerogative. Yeah, because we've heard here in British Columbia that employers and individual private sector workplaces would still have the option to bring in a mask rule in their workplace, right? And I've seen some signs on stores that say masks are appreciated but not mandatory. I think most people, they see that, okay, I'll put the mask on if I'm just going in to pick up a cup of coffee or whatever. But do you think, like, employers are still allowed to bring in a mask rule for their customers? Is that correct? I I think so, yeah. yeah. I, and, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the mask appreciation thing is interesting. I think it's similar to, you know, a... Um, a the sign in the washroom that reminds everybody to wash their hands. Obviously, that's what we want everybody to do. You can't ultimately force somebody at the end of the day, right? I mean, you can, I, I do think that unless somebody has a medical issue um, or a religious reason, although I'm not sure that that's a, a ground when it comes to masks, um, that you can deny service just as you could deny service to comes in, who comes into your store without a shirt. How about a vaccine mandate at work? Can your boss tell you you must be vaccinated to work here? No, and and that's different because it it crosses a line into, you know, what some people call a medical procedure. It is, you know, something that you are 
injecting into your body. And so it's got a different, completely different, it's on a completely different level than a mask mandate. Um, So I think that the legality of an employer-initiated mask mandate, even in the or a vaccine mandate, even in the context of it being something that the government was recommending was a little bit legally tenuous. But certainly now that uh, the vaccine passports are being lifted in BC in a couple of weeks, I think it's going to be very difficult, very, very difficult, if not impossible for an employer to uh, to insist on that. And oh, certainly really? won't be able to fire for cause. Yeah. Oh, OK. And you think that could be the case even in the public sector? Like right now, the B.C. government, for example, is saying they are going to continue with their vaccine mandate for frontline health care workers. So if you work in a hospital or or a long term care home, you must be vaccinated to work there. Do you think that could be challenged and and brought down by the courts? No, I do think oh. that if the government is is continuing to require it, then those specific employers have no choice. But okay. for private employers, and particularly now that there's no, there's a vaccine passport, I think it's going to be lifted April 8th. Um, yeah. The employers are just not going to have the same sort of, uh, of rationale to, yeah. to put behind it. There's not going to be the same kind of force behind it. Now, again, they can always decide to terminate somebody or not hire somebody who's not vaccinated, right? That's completely within their prerogative as well. Um, to make that decision. But in that case, if they're terminating somebody who's unvaccinated, they will have to absolutely pay them severance. All right. Welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about changing COVID rules in the workplace, can your boss make you come back to the office if you've been working at home? What about masking rules in the workplace? vaccine mandates where you work. My guest is Leah Moody. She's an employment lawyer at Samfiru to Marken. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Katie on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Katie. Go ahead. Hi. I'd like to preface this with saying that I don't work in the healthcare field. I don't work in anywhere that would really affect the public. Where I work, we are no longer required to wear masks. And unfortunately, due to having been forced to stay home, having some sort of COVID symptoms, I'm wondering moving forward, if we're not required to wear masks, and let's say I get a bit of a, a head cold or if I've got a migraine and my work goes old, that's kind of like COVID. Can they force me to stay home even though I've got no sick time and I'm forced to stay home unpaid? But... I can feel like I could work through a head cold or like a bit of a migraine or something. Like, can they really force me to stay home? So, like, if you have mild symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Leah, I what you... don't so, want my work made in danger yeah. in any way. I'm fully vaccinated and I'm happy to wear a mask if I'm not feeling well, but can they force me to stay home? Leah. So, first of all, I've got good news. This year, the BC government has introduced five. Um, paid days of sick time. So every employee very shortly is going to be automatically entitled to that um, for five days a year. So you are going to have that option available to you. So it's not going to be a choice between do I try to work through these minor symptoms um, or take an unpaid day. So, um, but that aside, I would just liken this to your sort of average cold or average flu or any other illness. If you've got an employer who is saying, and many do, uh, you know, we encourage you to stay home if you're sick, it's very similar to what we were talking about before the break. You can, you can let your employees know, you can let the staff know what your preference is, what the options are, but you can't ultimately force somebody to stay home. 
I hope that answers your question, Katie. Thank you for calling in. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. James on the line in Poco. Hi, James. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, just curious with uh, relating to healthcare workers, um, with all the, uh, in other provinces, they're, they're hiring back unvaccinated healthcare workers uh, because, you know, the systems are, are under major pressure. I think it's become obvious that the vaccine doesn't stop any sort of transmission. It may slightly, but I think we all know a lot of vaccinated people that have gotten uh, COVID lately. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, do any of these people, and, and BC, we, we laid off the most out of any province or, or fired, sorry, or whatever, put on indefinite leave, um, several thousand. Would they not have a case, given that the president has been set in other provinces, that uh, they are able to come back to work even though they're unvaccinated? Okay, thank you for That's the call. Really, yeah, ahead, it's a really good question. Um, I think that when we're dealing with a situation where the government has said that people need to be vaccinated in order to work, then the employer effectively had their hands tied. And I think that most employees who are going to be in that situation are not going to have a claim against the employer. But I do think that now that these things are starting to be lifted, or in the case of many private employers, somebody who was put on an unpaid leave of absence because they were unvaccinated should absolutely now be recalled to work. Um, And if they are recalled to work, they would be entitled to the wages, in my view, that they missed out on as a result of being on an unpaid leave of absence. I think the critical difference here is between an employer who is mandated by the government to to have vaccinated workers versus not. But I I definitely think that many people are going to be uh, in line for a claim here. Hey, Leah, last question for you. We just have one minute left here. And I know this is something a point that you make frequently, that if you are fired, your boss does have a lot of power and authority to fire you from your job. But are they legally required to pay you severance? And, and when that happens, do you find that sometimes these employers will try to underpay you on severance? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Mike, because yes. That is the entire reason why I have a job and why we're so busy. Uh, I would say that maybe one, once every six months, I get the opportunity to tell somebody, your severance package looks great, sign on the dotted line. But in 99% of cases, uh, the employer is undercutting what you're entitled to because they're just trying to see what they can get away with. Um, and I, I always recommend, you know, checking it out, making sure that you're getting what you're entitled to uh, and, and, you know, getting what you've earned. Hey, Leah, where can people contact you if they want some more information? You can contact us at employmentlawyers.ca. Leah, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care.